Hi there. Welcome to Mental Health Professionals Network podcast series. MHPN's aim is to promote and celebrate interdisciplinary, collaborative mental health care. My name's Mark Creamer, and in this second episode of our series looking at trauma, mental health and resilience, we're going to look more closely at the kinds of difficulties that people may develop when they've been through an extremely frightening or distressing event. I do want to emphasise at the outset that the majority of people who experience a traumatic event actually do not go on to develop long-term mental health problems. Human beings are uh, often remarkably resilient, and we'll be talking about the whole area of resilience in the next episode. I think actually as mental health professionals, we tend to only see those people who've been affected badly by their experience, and there's a danger that we may forget about the large number of people who do recover with just their existing coping skills and the support of family and friends. But the fact remains that a significant number of people do develop mental health problems following trauma, and it's really important to understand what kinds of problems might develop and how they might affect the person's quality of life. Joining me to explore the issues raised in this episode are two of the leading clinical researchers in the trauma field. Jonathan Bisson is Professor of Psychiatry at Cardiff University in the UK and Director of the All of Wales Traumatic Stress Quality Improvement Initiative. Paula Schnur is Executive Director of the American National Centre for PTSD and a professor at Dartmouth Medical School. As I was saying in my introduction there, Jonathan, the majority of people who experience traumatic events do not end up developing long-term mental health problems, but a significant proportion do. And when we're thinking about those people, I guess the first thing that springs to mind is post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. But that's not the only mental health problem that might develop, is it? No, not at all. And I mean, probably if you look at the literature and the research in this area, then it's not the commonest either. It certainly is a common mental disorder and one of the ones that you would expect to come across. But other common conditions such as depression, anxiety disorders, and also something that we label as an adjustment disorder, where often individuals have symptoms, perhaps depressive symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and some traumatic stress symptoms, but not at the severity that one would expect to find in a post-traumatic stress disorder. And I guess um, there's, there's a, perhaps a temptation, isn't there, to, to kind of look for PTSD immediately because it gives an automatic link to the trauma, even though, as you rightly point out, that might actually blind us to a better diagnosis sometimes. Well, I think that's right, and it's a, it's a big issue, I think, and I think that a number of people will be wrongly labelled with post-traumatic stress disorder when it isn't their primary difficulty. And that clearly can lead to inappropriate treatments being offered to the person. I'm a great believer, to be honest, in making sure that we do properly assess people when they present to us. And I think that means having an open mind and recognising that post-traumatic stress disorder isn't the only condition that can occur. I mean, clearly it is one of the key conditions and it's really important that people are fully aware of it that they can detect it and diagnose it and know how to treat it appropriately but I don't think that you're going to be able to help people appropriately who are involved in traumatic events unless you are aware of the full range of different conditions and able to diagnose and help people manage those as well and I guess the 
final point in um, answering that question really is that comorbidity is very common. So these aren't mutually exclusive. People don't have post-traumatic stress disorder and nothing else or depression and nothing else. Indeed, you know, most research shows that you've got over a 50% chance of having another condition in addition to post-traumatic stress disorder, if that is indeed what you've got. Yeah, absolutely. So if I could turn to you, Paula, John was talking there about depression and anxiety uh, being common as well as PTSD, but we also see substance use problems, don't we, in the aftermath of trauma? Absolutely. And there's actual evidence, even in adolescents as well as adults, that you can see the onset of the substance use after a traumatic experience has occurred. So so something that's important to understand, however, is that most of these disorders don't exist on their own without PTSD. There's been a lot of interest in the question of whether, oh, if it's not PTSD, what might it be? But usually if, it's, if there's depression, anxiety, substance use, uh, there is uh, PTSD. So it seems quite central to the, the, the development of these other disorders. Yeah, but highlighting the point that, that comorbidity and a very kind of complex clinical picture is probably the norm rather than the exception. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And I guess that we might speculate that that substance use is in part a kind of self-medication, a way of managing their own symptoms? It's often thought of, of, of serving that function, especially because of the, the timing, but substance use also can take on a life of its own. So what causes a person to initiate substance use may not be what's maintaining it. So in a, a, a clinical setting, the self medication may not even be the the driver uh, anymore and it may be the the full-blown substance use disorder that needs attention yeah yeah absolutely okay coming back to you john let's just pick up on this idea then that there's a whole range of different mental health problems that someone might develop the other thing i comment on i guess observe is that even within the diagnosis of ptsd we can see quite different clinical presentations some might present with an anxiety type of ptsd and some with a depressed miserable kind of ptsd and some with an angry aggressive kind of ptsd so have you got any ideas about what determines whether someone's going to develop depression or a depressed type of PTSD or someone's going to get angry or whatever? What, what do you think is driving that? Well, I think there's various factors and as ever, they tend to be factors within the individual and factors on the outside, more environmental factors, including the nature of the traumatic events itself. So, you know, for example, in my experience, individuals who are exposed to a major one-off, very frightening incident, um, you know, such as a sudden workplace-related event, for example, the initial reaction is often very fear-based because the individual was petrified of losing their life at the time. For individuals who I see who've unfortunately been subjected to repeated sexual abuse as a child, for example, then that initial marked fear isn't always as marked. It certainly can be present, but there's often more depressive symptoms coming through, feelings of shame, guilt, dirtiness, which gives a different complexion to the um, uh, individual symptoms that you're being presented with. Although nevertheless, in both of those examples, core symptoms include things like nightmares, um, distressing flashbacks to 
what happened, avoidance of thinking or talking about the events, and also hyper-arousal symptoms, so feeling very on edge, hypervigilance, if you like. Yeah, yeah. And, and while we're talking about different types of traumatic experience... There's a lot of interest nowadays in this idea of moral injury, isn't there? That that sometimes some events um, re- really challenge fundamental moral beliefs that the person has. That a, another another kind of reaction, I suppose. Yes, I mean, I think you know certainly in the military now that's being well recognised and discussed. Um, you know, and if an individual is doing something, for example, that is contrary to some of their in a moral beliefs, then they feel very bad about that. I mean, I think it's really important to, to distinguish between moral injury and post-traumatic stress disorder. Again, they're not mutually exclusive, but um, I wouldn't actually classify them in the same way. And indeed, moral injury per se, I wouldn't classify as a psychiatric disorder. Indeed, it's not classified as such at the moment. No, quite. Quite. Um, Coming back to you, Paula, and still focusing on some of the potential effects of severe trauma, we've been talking about what we might loosely call mental health problems, but there's an increasing body of evidence, isn't there, around the, uh, the kind of quite serious physical health problems that people with PTSD and related conditions might develop. Can you, can you just tell us something about that body of literature? Sure, and, and it's important to understand that PTSD can affect all aspects of a person's well-being and functioning, including including their physical functioning. And so the the experience of any kind of stressor has been, with, with a significant severity and significant chronicity, has been linked to a range of physical health problems. So it's logical to think that something as significant as PTSD could lead to health problems. And and the short answer is yes, what we see in people who have PTSD is uh, decreases in physical functioning, uh, decreased reports of, of the perceptions of health, as well as actual morbidity and even mortality. Now, now we think there are a number of reasons for this, uh, one being the use of substances that is comorbid with PTSD because the substances themselves can lead to these health problems. But there may also be biological changes associated with PTSD, such as the hyperreactivity, often being startled, having intrusive recollections, um, and, and so on, uh, leading to uh, overreactivity to even ordinary uh, stressors. So, so people who are on high alert all of the time, as many people with PTSD are, are, are stressing the stress response system that, that is designed to turn on and off and not be constantly on. And that's being reflected in uh, higher rates, for example, of things like cardiovascular problems? Cardiovascular in particular has been investigated, and I think there's a very clear association there. But there's other disorders. Some It seems that there, there uh, is a link with uh, disorders such as arthritis that might have a link to uh, immune functioning, uh, diabetes. Uh, the data on cancer are much more mixed, but even some data suggesting that cancer may be associated uh, with PTSD. It's across the board right now, so it's hard to map the biological changes or the behavioral changes we see in PTSD with the physical changes that we see in, in PTSD. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, and what about depression? Do we see uh, physical health impacts there also? Depression uh, has has effects that are really similar to those in PTSD. Now, in people who have both, let's say that we're examining the effects of PTSD on cardiovascular disorder and we statistically adjust for depression or take it into account, we typically will still see unique effects of PTSD. So it's not just the depression and PTSD that is the driver, but quite honestly, uh, depression and also serious mental illness uh, is linked to a range of very significant uh, health problems. Yeah, it's, it's so important, isn't it? And uh, and I do think often we tend to forget that, actually. Um, but OK, let's go on and talk about uh, a bit more about the impact of trauma exposure on a person's life. Paula was saying just earlier about the impact on physical health being enormous. But what about things like socially and occupationally? Do you think these post-traumatic mental health problems, while we know they do, have those kinds of impacts also? Yes, no, massively so. For many individuals, I found that there's a kind of a a drift downwards with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So an individual may have a job that, um, you know, approximates to... um, them achieving their potential, or they look as if they're on a trajectory to achieve their true potential occupationally, but actually that doesn't last and they lose jobs, perhaps have regular changes of jobs. So sadly for a lot of people with post-traumatic stress disorder, I think the occupational impact is uh, very strong. Yeah, absolutely. So that's occupationally. Uh, What about the social impact? So many individuals suffer from significant social impairment as a result of their post-traumatic stress disorder. In general, with the condition, individuals tend to cut off, become somewhat more isolated as a result of their symptoms and their ongoing um, difficult experiences and clearly avoiding situations that remind them of the traumatic event can have a marked impact on their social functioning. Yes, yes, absolutely. So we might see a broad range of of, of functional impairment. Paula? PTSD affects all aspects of a person's functioning and well-being. So what we know uh, is that not only do people have the symptoms, which are bad enough in, in their own right, but people may uh, experience decreased ability to function in their social roles, their parental roles, their occupational roles, and overall their, their, their life quality may be uh, reduced. We find that many times why people with PTSD will want to seek treatment is not specifically because of the symptoms, but rather because of the effect of symptoms on their their life. It can be as simple as saying things like, I want to be able to go out to dinner with my wife, or I want to be able to go to my daughter's piano recital. I want to be able to hold a job. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the kind of things that may drive people to treatment. And they all reflect the pervasive effects that PTSD can have on an individual and, and, and an individual social uh, network. Okay, so... Um Let's come back to individual differences in terms of clinical presentation. So I'm thinking not only about whether someone develops symptoms or not, but also about the type of, uh, of problems that might emerge. And, and presumably, John, what the person was like beforehand will influence the kinds of symptoms that might develop. Yes, no, totally. I mean, I think if an individual 
has a history, for example, of a recurrent depression or recurrent feelings of depression and tends to deal with stressful situations by becoming more depressed, then they're more likely to have a depressive reaction following a major traumatic event. And certainly that may well colour their presentation of post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. You know, Likewise, somebody who's very anxious, on edge, fearful, may develop a post-traumatic stress disorder that's more coloured with those sorts of elements. The environment after the traumatic event is of vital importance too. Yeah, absolutely, the recovery environment. Do you want to just expand on that briefly? Yeah, so briefly then an individual's perception of the level of social support they receive following a traumatic event has long been one of the key factors associated with a better or worse outcome. If you feel well supported, you tend to do better than if you don't. And clearly feeling poorly supported after an event can lead to very specific symptoms. So for example, in people that I see, anger can be quite prominent if an individual feels very poorly supported by an employer, for example, or a government after a major traumatic event. Depression, again, or depressive features would be things that I would associate more with this perception of poor social support after a traumatic event. Actually, uh, some research that has looked longitudinally at the relationship with PTSD and social support has found that the direction of influence changes over time. So initially, it looks like PTSD, or I'm sorry, it, it looks like social support can help decrease PTSD. But as a person lives their life with PTSD, they may actually ruin their social support so that at a certain point, the PTSD is then causing a decline in social support. Mm. That's a very nice study, isn't it? Because that just makes great intuitive sense. But um, just to go back a touch, I was talking to John there about the factors that might influence the type of clinical presentation, uh, the kinds of symptoms that might develop. But... The fact is, of course, that the majority of people don't go on to develop problems, uh, as we were mentioning earlier. Um, so what can we say about what differentiates those who do and do not, for example, who do and don't develop PTSD? And I should foreshadow the fact that in the next episode, we're going to talk about resilience per se. But more broadly, what, can, what, what do we know about these perhaps risk and protective factors for developing PTSD? Well, what we know is, is that a range of factors related to who a person is in terms of their personality, their genetics, their experiences, the event they experience, as well as their recovery environment make a difference. So there are many, many factors that go into determining whether any individual uh, will develop uh, PTSD. So for example, one that is uh, quite consistent but not well understood is gender. Uh, among people who are traumatized, women are more likely than men to develop PTSD. Now, some of this uh, seems to be due to the differences between men and women in the types of traumas they experience. Women are more likely than men to develop to experience the kind of traumatic events that can especially lead to PTSD, such as rape and, and sexual assault. But even when we take that into account, there seems to be an increased likelihood for women. So is it biology? Is it psychology? Is it, is it culture? Probably all of the above to some extent. But, but at this point, we haven't identified a, a full explanation. Yeah. 
Yes, but that that um, that gender difference is fascinating, isn't it? Um, but you mentioned genetics there, Paula. Just to come back to that briefly, is genetics going to give us some answers? Well, I think if if we could, if genetics were the answer, it might be an easy answer, it might be an elegant answer, but it wouldn't be the right answer. And and what I mean by that is we know that factors far beyond genetics, having a lot to do with the environment, for example, uh, the recovery environment, the social support that people have, the stress that they have after a a traumatic experience can have very substantial influences on the likelihood of them developing PTSD. So, So given that so much of what seems to predict PTSD is not genetic, I have I have hopes that we will have greater understanding of the role of genes, but I, I don't imagine that genes will tell us uh, the whole story and, and that, in fact, we will need to look to a variety of factors. And, and especially what interests many people in the field is the kind of factors that can be manipulated in order to mitigate risk. So, for example, social support, which can be enhanced. Uh, decreasing stress, which can be decreased. Those are the kind of things that matter in terms of trying to promote recovery from a traumatic experience. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the, the, the bottom line is that there are a multitude of reasons why some people develop PTSD and others don't. And just thinking about that, I wonder if there's a risk that, um, that, that that might be used to somehow blame people who develop problems. So it's really important for anyone looking at this to understand that developing PTSD, even though most people don't develop it, it's not a sign of being weak or defective in some way because there are so many factors that are are, are related and especially the recovery environment, having good social support, having, having uh, fewer stressors uh, or no stressors after the experience can make a big difference. Yes, yes, indeed. And in fact, we talked earlier about downward spirals and how people may recruit more symptoms and functional impairment over time. So this is really where the recovery environment becomes crucial, doesn't it, John? No, absolutely right. And so I think, you know, this all points to really early detection and intervention to try and prevent that downward spiral from occurring. Um, You know, certainly in my experience, if you can get in there, early and people are willing to engage with you at that early point, then you can make a a real difference. And the kind of the secondary consequences of post-traumatic stress disorder, be they social, occupational or in other areas of one's life, those impacts can be ameliorated to a degree. Yeah, yeah, quite. And that, that really is the big challenge, isn't it? Being able to do that uh, routinely. And, and I do think that the key high-risk uh, organisations like the military and, and the first responders and so on, they are beginning to get more on board with this, aren't they? So I, I suppose there's some cautious optimism there in terms of early intervention. Yeah, I think very, very much so. I mean, you know, as we both know, sadly, there's very limited evidence for a lot of the um, early intervention um, techniques that are being adopted and they perhaps have face validity and some anecdotal evidence of effect. But I think that doing things that aren't going to cause harm early on is the right way to go. I'm not keen on over-intervention or over-formal intervention straight after a traumatic event because I think that that can or has the potential to um, adversely impact the normal 
coping mechanisms that we all have. In fact, practical pragmatic support in an empathic way provided by those who are nearest and dearest to us and also those people that are in positions to look after us, such as our employees, our, our work colleagues, are the types of interventions that I think are most likely to be most beneficial. So interventions based on the principles of psychological first aid, if you like, rather than trying to manufacture a very specific intervention that we deliver to every individual following a traumatic event, which I think does have risks of pathologizing normal reactions. Yeah, absolutely. When we do a podcast on early intervention, John, we'll get you back. But uh, <laughs> look, I guess um, early recognition is important for physical health outcomes also, Paula? Absolutely. And, and the reason is that some disorders, may, even if you treat PTSD and the PTSD goes away, if the disorder is uh, established, for example, coronary artery, artery disease. Once you have it, getting treated for PTSD uh, isn't likely to reduce the coronary artery disease. You will now need treatment for that disorder. In contrast, something like diabetes, where behavioral management can be so key, the extent to which you are able to manage your symptoms with things like diet and exercise, following whatever advice the doctor gives you, uh, could help uh, uh, reduce uh, the problems you have from things like diabetes. So what, what I'm saying is that the effects on some health problems may, may be independent of the initial effects of, of PTSD, and therefore treating PTSD early before some of these health problems develop is key. Yeah. The final thing that I'd like to talk to both of you about in this episode, uh, John and Paula, is the diagnosis of PTSD. And I don't want to go too far down into the weeds here. Um, I know people like us who specialise in PTSD uh, find this question fascinating. So just in broad terms, how good is our current uh, PTSD diagnosis? And, and in fact, can we even agree on what PTSD is? I think the diagnosis of PTSD is pretty good. And the reason I say that is that uh, when it was first proposed in 1980, it helped unify a number of different aspects of the mental health field, people looking at Holocaust survivors, veterans, rape trauma survivors, and, and such, uh, in some cases, naming what they were looking at by the event that had been experienced, like Holocaust survivor syndrome, rape trauma syndrome, and helping us understand that these were looked like all the, the same thing. The, the other reason PTSD, I think, is a pretty good diagnosis is that we see it cross-culturally. We see it in first world countries and in third world countries. And it, it seems to capture an important part of the human reaction to uh, trauma. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, Sandy was making similar points in our last episode. Um, but what about you, John? Do you think we've got the diagnosis right yet? Well, I think diagnoses do change over time. And it's very important to recognise that essentially at any one time, a diagnosis is the best approximation to reality that's been agreed by a committee of um, experts using whatever evidence is available to them. And I do truly believe that the individuals on these committees try their hardest and do their best to come up with meaningful diagnoses that are going to be helpful. <clears throat> One of the big issues we've got in the traumatic stress field at the moment is that the 
two main classification systems, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM-5, produced by the American Psychiatric Association, and the International Classification of Diseases, 11th edition, produced by the World Health Organization, have diverged in their approach to the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, this may be helpful in terms of academia and just trying to find out the truth as we move forward. But I think there are risks to that, to the general public, for example, in terms of their understanding of the condition. Sure. I must say... I was Sorry. just going to say that if, if we just boil that down to the nuts and bolts, essentially DSM-5 is kind of um, trying to describe, it seems to me, the whole clinical condition, a sort of kitchen sink kind of job, whereas ICD has tried to hone it down to just what is really the core components that are unique to PTSD. Would that be a, a, a fair description? No, I think that is a fair description. So the ICD-11 is very much focused on clinical utility, so how useful the actual diagnostic criteria are to a clinician to help an individual. And I think by having a more um, refined way of looking at post-traumatic stress disorder is a sensible way to go. I think the ICD is too narrow in terms of picking the the symptoms that are uh, hallmarks. Uh, And and it's not a surprise, uh, consequently, that we see lower prevalence of ICD-diagnosed PTSD than DSM-diagnosed PTSD. Um, I think that what we need to do, however, is more research to to understand ultimately which is the better way to characterize it and then also how to characterize the people who have something that, that is not one or one or the other of these diagnoses, because if you look in in the the DSM five, PTSD moved from a category of anxiety disorders to a category of disorders that are recognized to be caused by events. And so, if a person has had a traumatic experience, they're very significantly impacted, and they don't meet the diagnostic criteria. Maybe they have something that's important. And diagnostically, sometimes we call these things something not otherwise specified. I think we can probably do better than that, but we need to study it in order to better characterize the the flavor of reactions and the range of reactions we see to traumatic experiences. I guess the bottom line is that however we go about our diagnosis, the purpose of making the diagnosis is really to drive treatment, is to decide on our treatment plan and so on. So uh, even though there is some disagreement in the field, it's still very important for clinicians to try and make a valid diagnosis, isn't it, in order to drive treatment? I think it is important to make a valid diagnosis. I mean, I think you open up a very interesting topic of conversation and the fact is that increasingly my belief is that it's not really the diagnosis that should be driving us into exactly what form of treatment to provide an individual. We need to be much more precise about this and I've already spoken to the fact that there are these two distinct um, diagnoses now within ICD-11 and I think that most of us would not be offering exactly the same treatment to somebody with PTSD and to somebody with complex PTSD. There may be common elements and there probably are common elements to those treatments but we'd probably take a different approach depending on what the prominent features an individual is presenting with. So 
I think we're going to be moving more towards modular, perhaps phase treatments in some instances for individuals so that we're actually looking to come up with a more personalised approach to the management plan that's agreed in conjunction with the individual with PTSD or complex PTSD. Yeah, I agree entirely. And in fact, that links very nicely to something that we said in, we heard in the last episode from uh, Megan O'Donnell, who was talking about transdiagnostic uh, approaches and so on. And that does allow us then to tailor treatment to meet the individual more than just being driven blindly by the diagnosis. What about you, Paula? Do you reckon there's a, a future for that dimensional kind of approach? Well, I think there's a future for understanding it. Uh, I don't know how how the evidence will fall out. And I I think I in my own career, I've gone both sides of this, thinking we really should throw out the categories, the edges, and just think about dimensions. And then finding the value of using these uh, categories and I think accepting that that there are there are not uh, firm lines uh, in many cases that diagnostically people might be right on the edge of something and look a little bit more like like something else but understanding the the heuristic value of having the the categories uh, to me is uh, is is very important. Uh, for uh, for helping patients understand their experiences and for helping us uh, understand them. Now, maybe there'll be a day when we can live only in dimensions and what I just said uh, will not matter. And, and that uh, understanding where you are on five or six different dimensions may be fully satisfactory for any provider to treat you or for you to understand your experience. But, but for right now, I think that's not where the... Um, that the evidence is, and uh, I've I've come down to accepting uh, the the limits, but uh, really embracing the strengths of the diagnostic categories. Yes, yeah, sure, but. I guess however we describe these reactions, either categorically or dimensionally, the primary goal is going to be to improve treatment and perhaps to promote some cautious optimism? Yes. Part of what our National Centre has been trying to do is get across the message that PTSD is not a chronic disorder. And you can see big differences when people get get these largely trauma-focused treatments, usually cognitive behavioural, but also EMDR is another effective treatment. Getting the right treatment can be a game changer for people. Absolutely, absolutely. And and that's such an important message there, isn't it? And uh, And it's a very nice, positive note to end on. I'm sure we could talk about these issues for hours, but we need to draw the discussion to a close. So I'd like to thank you both very much indeed, Professor John Bisson and Professor Paula Schnur, for sharing your insights with us in this episode. Sure. Okay, thank you, Mark. So to sum up what we've been discussing today, it's clear that most people who experience trauma are able to recover without professional assistance, but a significant minority will develop conditions like PTSD, depression, anxiety, and substance use disorders. And it's not just mental health problems. We've also seen that serious physical health problems often develop in people who've experienced trauma and PTSD. We've seen that these problems are not only very distressing, but they also often lead to long-term impairments in social and occupational functioning and, of course, in quality of life. There are many reasons why some people seem to be affected while others are not and why someone might develop one type of problem instead of another. 
and it's clear that there is still some debate about exactly what constitutes PTSD. In the next episode, the final one in this three-part series, we'll go on to look at the concept of resilience, as well as other ways in which we might be able to prevent the development of post-traumatic mental health problems and to facilitate recovery. I'm Mark Creamer, and I hope you'll join me again for that third and final episode in this three-part podcast series on trauma, mental health and resilience. Visit mhpn.org.au to find out more about our online professional program, including podcasts, webinars, as well as our face-to-face interdisciplinary mental health networks across Australia. 